I'm uh, really not sure why all of you are here tonight. I don't know whether it was the hamburgers or whether it was the awards to the Air Force or whether um, you're interested in what happened on Sunday morning or whether or not you want to hear something about eschatology. So we've, uh, we've accomplished one of those things, or actually two of them. You've had your hamburgers and you've, uh, we've awarded. I think you need to hear about the results of Sunday. Um, it is a, a thoroughgoing commitment on the part of Gracie Van that we don't keep secrets from you. Um, I think you've heard me say before, uh, if you want to know it, we'll tell it to you. Uh, the only, about the only secret we keep is staff salaries. Other than that, we're pretty much an open book. So we do not, I mean, some of you have dug deep and sacrificed much, and the last thing in the world that we felt we should do is then hide from you the encouragements that we've had in the past week. Before I give you some totals, I want to read you one thing. And I, uh, I've told this man, I had his permission to read this, but I'm, I'm not going to tell you who wrote it. Listen, Jimmy. This past Sunday was quite emotional and exciting for my family, and especially me. I do not think I've ever felt more a part of God's kingdom, Him, or His work as I did on Sunday. Maybe one year to one year and a half, a year and a half ago, we sat down and you listened to me tell you how I felt Gracie Van was not the place for me. You said to me, give me a chance, let me help you get involved. I felt leaving that day not much more different than when I got there. I was not convinced that you could help. After praying about it, I felt as if God wanted me to give Grace more of a chance. In His providence, I believe He used your compassion and enthusiasm over the next several months to excite, encourage, help, and most of all, challenge me, both from the pulpit and on a personal level. I was not sure for what, but for something. Jimmy, if it was for nothing other than to be involved in Sunday service, it was worth it. I was trying to describe to someone last night what Sunday has meant to me and I could not put into words or express the range of emotions that I felt and went through. If I would have to leave Memphis tomorrow and my only reason for being brought here was being a part of that service, it was worth it. I thanked God and I would like to thank you. One last thing, how high, how far, how much? <laughs> Is that not thrilling? <laughs> We've, got, we've had several of these. This was, I, I'm, I'm just one big chill bump right now, but uh, we've had several wonderful responses, but I know you want to know uh, the, the bottom lines. It's hard to give you exactly the bottom line. I can give you pretty, pretty firm, but things are still, I, you know, I had somebody give me uh, a commitment tonight. So uh, we have, we've been, we've been getting them in the mail this week. There are several people that have been out of town and, and we get telephone calls, et cetera. But here's where we are at this moment. But it's preliminary, and we really believe that we will, um, we will be beyond this uh, in the coming days. There, are, there is about $4.1 million in pledged monies. There is another almost $800,000 in uh, faith promises. There is another um, uh, roughly $100,000 in a commitment that a man made to me personally, but um, said that he could not do anything until his year end, which is in September. So all of that said, we feel like we're somewhere between 5-1 and 5-2, which is unbelievable, ladies and gentlemen.
let me let me say something real quick and then we'll get to the millennium stuff but uh you're going to hear this again on sunday and it's going to be um, uh, we don't have much time tonight but i'm i want to share more of it on sunday gang i had a man come up to me sunday morning and he said jimmy we may not raise six million dollars this morning but i'm leaving here with six billion dollars worth of spiritual blessing that summarizes what i feel when i left that pulpit area the, on the first service to go down and get my wife and saw the amount of you leaving your seats um, and by the time i got to my wife she was crying and of course i was crying and then the people in the choir were crying and, and um, it was it was all worth it um, guys you know we have a philosophy of ministry here that says we're trying to reach an unchurched world through maturing believers well i, I hate to affix too much uh, um, importance on money but i want you to know i think we all took a step forward in our maturity as a family that was the wonderful thing for me is that i think we did something together that was so impressive in so many ways um apparently there's a lot of generous people out here i don't know what you did i just know the totals but um i applaud you um i'm not sure how to say this next statement i i give it some thought but i'm, I'm not sure um let me put it like this i'm not sure this is the best way to do it but um in the course of all this look campaign uh, i had somebody ask me they said well jimmy um i need to know one thing before i commit anything um are you going to stay and um i, I kind of chuckled at that because i said basically you don't realize it but i'm i'm basically unemployable um <laughs> uh, i can't do anything but uh, be a pastor and uh, not many people would have me um but i say that to say this it's a privilege to be your pastor and i'd be a fool to leave here <laughs> but but uh, all I'm saying is, it's such a delight to pastor you because God is moving in your midst. And I get to watch. I get to be a part of what God is doing, what He's up to in your lives. And so, oh, folks, uh, it has made me love you more. Uh, and really not the totals the totals which impressed me what made me what was so compelling to me was the worship service itself just like this man said so that's that's the news we'll be giving you some more um uh, there's probably some things that will be starting this summer i can't promise that we have a meeting on friday the elders do to try and make some more decisions now uh, maybe others of you came to hear about the left behind series now i'm going to be a little bit disappointing to you because that's not what i'm addressing uh, what has spawned my interest in doing this is I get questioned uh, more often than you can possibly imagine about what I think about the Left Behind series. I'm on the Stairmaster and people are asking me about the Left Behind series. Um, and I, you know, I get, you know, I hope you're not going to tell us tonight not to read the Left Behind series because I've been reading it and, I, I, and I'm not going to tell you to do that. Um, I wish you would, but... Uh, <laughs> um, and, and I've had people say to me, uh, Jimmy, um, you've got to understand that we know that it's fiction. 
Well, I'm not so sure you do, folks. Um, the comment that was made to me tonight, and I don't think she minds me sharing this, is that she thought she was learning things about the book of Revelation. Well, uh, you see, that, yes, it's, it's presented in fictional form. But the goal of that series, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, is to teach you something out of the book of Revelation. Don't, don't kid yourself. Now, I say to you, they're nothing but a, a nice round of Dell comic books. And Tim LaHaye, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is a great gift to the church. He is a marvelous brother. And as a counselor, he has offered the church some rich, rich materials that many of us can prosper from. I do say this. As a theologian, uh, Dr. LaHaye is a good counselor. Um, he, he is not a theologian and never purports to be one. But and I don't think he had, had any idea that this thing was going to cost such interest. But it has. And, you know, they're making movies out of it. And, and there's a new one out. And, and you're all going to go buy it and read it on the beach of Destin this summer. And I hope you won't. And, and I hope I can get you something that's decent into your hands to read if you're, if you're interested in this subject. But uh, uh, unfortunately, if you read those, you're going to walk away thinking you know something about eschatology. And, and I'm telling you, you're not. You're going to know a little bit about one view is what you're going to know. And you're going to know a little bit about the most antagonistic, dogmatic, militaristic view that there is. Now, guys, um, this subject is extremely difficult for lots of reasons. Uh, it has been and continues to be the source of enormous controversy in the church. I, I just about come to the conclusion that um, the more vital and important any theological doctrine is, uh, the more the devil will make sure that there's a great deal of controversy that surrounds it. Now, that's part of the problem, but, the, but another part of the problem is that you've got to understand is that the Bible is not clear. It is not clear, ladies and gentlemen. And I, and I hope you'll hear me. Um, if anything, if you think that you've got it all corralled, it's because you haven't studied enough. Because there's some good people uh, on all four of these views. By the way, having said that, this is the book that I would recommend you get. It is in our bookstore, three whole copies. We tried to get others. Uh, we hadn't gotten them yet. But if you want one, we can keep it up. But what this, you see what it says? It is the four views. It gives you all four views, the pros and the cons of each. And, um, and then I'm telling you, if you can read this book and walk away thinking, oh, well, I know it all now. Guys, these are good guys. Lorraine Bettner, uh, uh, Anthony Hoaxma, George Eldon Ladd. These are smart fellas. And they disagree violently. And I'm going to show you. Now, I've got that little sheet of paper in your hands. I hope that's going to help you a little bit. Let me give you a, uh, uh, let me say this real quickly. I am on a fool's errand tonight. This is utter foolishness. Because I need eight hours. I'm not teasing you. I need eight hours. I need two hours of you. I'm going to try to compress this in about 30 minutes. And that's foolishness. Uh, ultimately, you'll walk out of here more confused. But um, that's my goal. Uh, <laughs> my hope is, is that you would hold an abeyance any uh, decision until you've had more time to, to study the issues. I'll, I'll give you a quote, I'll, I'll tell you a, a statement that was made to me personally right out of the mouth of R.C. Sproul. Now, you know who he is? 
He's probably the most, the most brilliant theologian in, in America today. And R.C. looked at me, and we, we were at the supper one night. I asked him, he said, well, Jimmy, but if somebody put a gun to my head, I think I would be this. And he chose one of the four. All I'm saying is, R.C. Sproul, who is a brilliant theologian, a systematician, said, you know, I'm really not sure about which one I should be. And I think that's what position you want to take. Now, uh, historically speaking, there were only two views. One was called Keelism, the other was called non-Keelism. Now, that has been expanded to four views. Keelism basically said that there was a real, literal, thousand-year reign of Christ. Non-Keelism says that there was not a, a non-literal thousand years. Now, that's the way it was. Then it's been expanded to four views. Part of our problem in this discussion is that we're dealing with a whole different genre of literature. Like, oh, by the way, let me hold on to this one. Um, we're dealing with a whole different genre of literature. Ladies and gentlemen, the book of Revelation is not rightly named. The Greek word is apocalypsis. The apocalypsis of John. Now, the English word that's been translated is called revelation. Well, what you're dealing with is apocalyptic literature. And very frankly, apocalyptic literature is full and rich of symbolic language. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, what apocalyptic literature does is that it bursts through the boundaries of conventional categories. For instance, we are normally in, um, in, in, in the New Testament, we are normally faced with metaphors like this, uh, a shepherd and sheep, a king and subjects. In the book of Revelation, if you will, uh, I think, it, yes, it's in 21.2, uh, no, in 22.1, I forget. Um, no, in 21.2, you have a city that is dressed in a wedding gown. Now, do you see what has happened here? In apocalyptic literature, you're normally thinking one way. But in this genre of literature, what, what apocalyptic literature does is juxtaposes many different kinds of metaphors side by side and together. Like a city coming down dressed in a bride in a, in a wedding gown. Now that's just hard. Now that's part of the problem. It's, it's part of the problem why you and I shouldn't be dogmatic about these issues. Now let me tell you another, another problem that is a big problem, ladies and gentlemen. It has to do with hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Gang, <clears throat> hermeneutics is the theory of interpretation. How do you interpret your Bible? Now, if you're going to be a dispensational premillennial, which is what Tim LaHaye is, your hermeneutic is dictated to you. It is a literal hermeneutic. They insist upon a literal hermeneutic. Let me show you how you get yourself in trouble that way. Open your Bibles, if you will, real quickly to uh, Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> Romans 11. We've got to go fast, y'all. 
Romans 11. Are you there? Romans 11, verse 26. And so, all Israel will be saved. Now, what you're going to hear if you adopt a liberal, a literal hermeneutic is that every last smidgen and part of the nation of Israel is going to have to be saved. Now, flip over to Romans 9 real quick. <clears throat> Verse 6. Um, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Now, what do you think about that? In dispensational premillennialism, ladies and gentlemen, one of the fundamental characteristics of dispensationalism is the um, absolute demarcation between Israel, the nation of Israel, and the church. Very frankly, they see the church as a grand hiccup, and we'll look at that in a minute. But my point is, ladies and gentlemen, one of the problems in this whole discussion is what kind of hermeneutic you adopt. For instance, um, we go to the book of uh, Revelation and we see that there's going to be 144,000 people in heaven. Did you know that the Jehovah's Witnesses at one time said that there were going to be 144,000 people in heaven? Literally 144,000 people. That was before their church grew beyond 144,000. Then they said, oops, um, that's no longer to be understood literally. I'll give you another example. Uh, Revelation chapter 20. Satan is bound with a chain. Do you, ladies and gentlemen, believe that Satan will have a literal chain hanging around his neck? Well, if you do, that's a literal hermeneutic. I don't think that you have to insist upon that to understand rightly what is being communicated in, Re in Revelation chapter 20. Is Satan going to be bound? Yeah. Is he going to have a chain around his neck? I don't know. Why, you know? Um, <clears throat> how about this image? Lake of fire. Do you think that hell is a lake of fire? You've heard me say from the pulpit, ladies and gentlemen, I think any man in hell today would give everything that he owned if hell were only a lake of fire. It is a symbol, and reality always exceeds symbol. The reality is worse than the symbol. But gang, if you adopt a literal... And let me tell you one of the problems, one of the huge problems with dispensationalism. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion, it closes off the door to dispensationalism, this problem. Because dispensationalism sees Israel at the center of the millennium, then all of the temple is going to be rebuilt. The sacrificial system is going to be reinstituted during the millennium. Now, ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion, that is a complete violation of the message of the book of Hebrews, which says, all the blood's been shed. Why? Tell me, give me a good reason why God would want to reinstitute the sacrifice of, of, of animals after he's seen fit to leave his son on the cross. Now, but that's part of the problem in terms of your literal hermeneutic. Now, does that mean <clears throat> that dispensationalists don't say anything good? No. It just means, ladies and gentlemen, to dogmatize. Very, very honestly, in my opinion, in my opinion, 
You have three options, not four. Dispensationalism is not a viable option, in my opinion. And that's what that's what you're reading and left behind. That's what you're reading. It is militaristic, very frankly. It's a Johnny-come-lately. They've only been around for the last 200 years. Um, popularized by the C.I. Schofield Bible. And, um, and we're going to look at it real quickly in a minute. But, um, guys, I, I'm just telling you, there are three options. I don't think that's a good one. I, very frankly, if you have been raised in, in um, eschatology conferences or in last prophecy conferences, and you have been a part of those things where the charts were pulled down and, and people told you what things were going to happen, I'm telling you, you better forget every bit of that because that's dispensational uh, premillennialism. Now, there is a premillennialism which is a very viable option. It's historic premillennialism. You have amillennialism, postmillennialism, and historic premillennialism. And then you have dispensational premillennialism. Now, you've got that in the little sheet that I handed out. You've got a timeline there. And what I've tried to do is give you a timeline. Uh, how things are supposed to unfold according to this particular view. Um, let's start with premillennialism. I, I don't have one of those sheets up here with me. So, do we have any extras of those? It, uh, did, did, does anybody need one that didn't get one? Oh, gosh. Look over there. Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, uh, um, <laughs> who needs one? If you'll just, if you can pass yours around. Oh my! Oh, oh she's probably gonna go cut. Okay, who needs this one? There you are, my dear. You're the closest, Thelma. Um, you know what? I need one too. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll give it back. No, no, no. I want you to have it. I want you to have it. I, 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 can, I can make do. Um, all right, guys. Look at premillennialism. Which one is that? Number one. Number one. All right. Oh, maybe I arranged this rightly. Hmm. Can't see that. <clears throat> you will notice. Uh, very frankly, the, the left-hand side, most of that is the same. You've got the Old Testament. Uh, you've got um, uh, the Christ's first coming, the cross, of course, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, and then the church age. And then the seven years of tribulation, and then after that, the, the rapture and the second coming, uh, that is, Christ comes again and um, introduces a millennial kingdom. A thousand years, a literal thousand years. That's why it is called pre-millennialism, because Christ comes before the, the thousand years. Um, there's a lot of, uh, we just don't have time to tell you what, the, what all that they're, all that they would suggest in that time period. But let me, let me mention a couple of things that might be, um, unfortunate about that position. Um, what premillennialism does is leave you with a very curious situation. Here it is. When Christ returns to set up that millennial kingdom, he will do so accompanied by people who have come with him from heaven, um, who will reign in Jerusalem with um, ordinary mortals uh, still in the flesh for a thousand years. Now, gang, here's the curious situation. Exalt the millennium any way you please. 
it still remains far, far below heaven. Um, what you're saying is, people who are enjoying the felicity and bliss of heaven are now dragged out of heaven back onto the earth uh, to experience a little kingdom and, and where evil still remains. And there is, the, the, Christ is dominant, but evil still remains. The, um, the, during that uh, thousand year period, premillennialism suggests that the entire, um, uh, the temple's going to be rebuilt, the sacrificial system is going to be reinstituted. Um, I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the, the whole system of Judaism has been abrogated. Um, God is through with Israel as a nation. And he now has another vehicle that he is using. It is called the church. Now, guys, you will see, do you see there, there's your problem, hermeneutics. I am suggesting what I think Paul is... What, how does Paul define Israel? He says, not all are sons of Abraham that are sons of Abraham. It is those who have exercised faith. What I'm saying is the, the, um, the insistence upon a literal understanding of the nation of Israel um, means that Israel is going to have to play this unbelievable role in the millennium, uh, one that I don't think, oh, thank you, uh, a beautiful chartreuse. <clears throat> Mine were prettier. Um, I, I hope you can see, that's just a couple of, we've got to look at the other three. Oh, we've got seven minutes. <laughs> How wonderful. Um, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> oh, by the way, too, if you'll notice, uh, on premillennialism, uh, Satan is bound at the beginning of Christ's coming. That is the second kingdom, or the second coming. I'm suggesting to you that Satan was bound long before that. He was bound in Matthew 12. You remember about how can you enter into the strong man's house? Um, just part of the problems. Now, uh, by the way, let me before we leave this, if you'll notice the tribulation of seven years, within dispensationalism, that's the bottom one, there are three views of the tribulation. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. That is, when is the rapture going to occur? Before the tribulation? In the middle of the tribulation? Or after the tribulation? I want to just show you this, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I'm not even saying this guy's right. I don't know whether he's right. But for one of the positions to dogmatize their spot is utterly naive. Because, gang, um, you know, I heard R.C. say one time, you mean to tell me that through the entire history of the church, Christians have suffered persecution, but according to dispensationalism, we're all going to miss it. Why are we special? What, what made us special that we're going to miss the tribulation? Well, that's just part of the problems of uh, premillennialism. Well, we got to go to postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is uh, number two. Look at me. Um, post means after. That is, Christ comes after the millennium. The millennium began at Pentecost. 
It's, uh, it's a very uh, a much less literal hermeneutic than premillennialism, but uh, certainly not confined to uh, a thousand literal years. <clears throat> then at the end of that um, thousand year period, Christ comes then. But you will notice that, um, that postmillennialism suggests that good will increase until the whole world comes under the influence of Christianity. Now, um, all I can say to you in terms of a, a, um, a uh, objection to, to postmillennialism is, you remember in Luke 18 when um, uh, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What is the implication? That the whole world will not be populated with massive amounts of believers, but it will be rare to find a believer left when he comes again. But postmillennialism tells us that um, we're all going to move towards this grand uh, revival and everything's going to come to Christ. Drop down with me to um, uh, dispensationalism. I've already really told you some... Basically, if you'll notice that after Pentecost, what Jesus came to do, according to dispensationalism, is set up an earthly kingdom. The Jews rejected him, and so God said, okay, oops, that didn't work. I'm going to have to use somebody else. And so he's decided to use or to allow Gentiles to come into his church, and that's you and me. Um, and then uh, you go through the tribulation and you'll, the apostasy, the antichrist, all that stuff. Another one of the problems, ladies and gentlemen, with dispensationalism is that you don't have a second coming. You have a second coming and a third coming. There is a secret coming in dispensationalism where he raptures the church out. Uh, and then this, uh, this millennial kingdom starts, and then there's another coming where um, uh, everything is closed off and ended. So there's, there's the first coming when he came in humiliation and was crucified. Then he comes again, raptures out his church, and then he comes a third time uh, to end everything. I think that's a significant flaw with, um, with dispensationalism. Now, amillennialism, and we're going to have to quit here. <laughs> Amillennialism is that number three position. I have to tell you, if a gun was put to my head, I would be an amill. That's what I would be. But I'm going to tell you something before I close. Um, one of the problems with amillennialism is their hermeneutic. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, there are conservative Christians that think amills are liberals because amills do not believe in a literal thousand years, but that the, millenn the millennium has begun, and it is called realized eschatology because you are in it now. Jesus Christ doesn't reign in the millennium. He reigns now. He's been reigning ever since he ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's not waiting for some kind of rule. He rules now, and his kingdom is being extended even now. And Satan has been bound. He was bound in Matthew 12, and he will be uh, uh, imprisoned at the second coming and the preparation of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, guys, <laughs> that's all the time we got. I, I'll tell you this. Here's what I think you should do. I, I say jokingly to people, I am not pre-mill. I am not post-mill. I am not a-mill. Some people say, well, I'm pan-mill. Well, I'm not pan-mill either. Um, I'm pro-mill. I'm for it. I don't know exactly how it's going to happen. Um, I just know that the number one injunction of the New Testament concerning Christ's coming is what? 
Watch and be ready. Gang, let's imagine that I'm a, I'm a traveling salesman. And I had been uh, sent on an assignment, and I'm to be gone for 90 days. No, uh, I'm to be gone with an interminable period of time. And, um, and I've been gone for 90 days, 180 days, and I'm, I'm working. And my fam I'm over in the other part of the planet, and my family's over here. And I call them one day, and I say, I'm finished. I'll be home today. And so my wife and my girls begin to argue I think he's going to be home in the morning. No, I think he's going to be home in the afternoon. Oh, 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 he's coming home at night. I know he's... And so they're arguing the whole day about when I'm supposed to be there. And so when I, when I get to the door, they're in the den arguing about when I'm going to get there. No little noses pressed on the window waiting for Daddy to get home. No, no clean bedroom. No nice warm meal. Just arguments going on with my family as to when I'm coming. Gang, give it up. Give it up and just prepare. Watch. Become more like Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you this, I'll tell you when he's coming. Just like a thief. And if you think you can go out and get prepared for his coming because you know when it is, that's obviously when he's not coming. <laughs> because he said, I'm going to come on a day that no man knows. He's going to surprise us all. Now, ladies and gentlemen, why one of these views would tell you that they've got it all figured out, I think is downright unethical. And for you to be reading that stuff and getting all your views, I think is going to be utter, long term, it's going to be harmful for you. It's not going to be helpful. Guys, if you want to study something that's a legitimate approach, then study this. But I'm telling you, at the end of this, you're not going to have your mind made up. But one thing we can agree on, we've got a lot to do before he gets back. We've got a world to reach. We've got a community to impact. Now, we'll let him figure out the day and the hour and the season. Enough discussion, I think. Let me pray. Father, I, I do pray that this has been somewhat helpful for your people. And I pray that they will um, be exhorted and not so much to a theological insight, but that he might be exhorted to become more like the Savior as we wait for his return. Everybody in this room, no matter what their eschatological position is, believes in a literal bodily return of Jesus Christ. And I pray that um, as we hold on to that great hope, that it will change the way we live that it'll make us new people because one day the skies indeed will be rent the trumpets will sound and the bride will see her heavenly bridegroom return in all his glory for that we wait and for in that we glory we commit ourselves to a patient watchful moral holy waiting and we do so in Jesus name Amen Thank you guys Good night Thanks brother uh.